me and my mom for a while when she and my dad split up, we lived in a suburb of Chicago for some years and there weren't a lot of Armenians there. <laughs> very few. So people were very confused about me and, and who I was. And it was always like, what? Oh, you're Egyptian, right? You're this, you're this, you're that. Everyone putting what they thought I was on me, no matter how many times I explained who I was and what I was. And there was one boy who was happened to be Black and Armenian. And he was in theater with me. And... I remember I went up to him and at that time, people were always trying to like talk about what is someone or what is their sexuality or whatever, especially in theater. And I was like, hey, can I ask you something? And he looked so annoyed because he was like, oh, I know what she's going to just ask, ask, ask what you're going to ask. And I was like, are you black and Armenian? And the way his face lit up because he was like, yes, are you? And I was like, yes. And we just hugged each other. And I was like, "Ah, I never met anyone before who was black and Armenian. I didn't know that there were more of us. And he was like, oh my God, yeah, my mom's Armenian. And I was like, oh yeah, my my mom's black, my dad's Armenian. We're like, yeah. Welcome to Swana Stories. Our storyteller today is Karini, a coalition builder and multidisciplinary artist based in Los Angeles on unceded Tongva land. She talks about solidarity among movements, her ancestral roots as an artist, and her experiences as a mixed-race person in community organizing. Heads up that she talks a bit about the Armenian genocide and slavery. My name is Karen e. Rose Mecker Tichon, and I am an artist, I'm an organizer, I'm an educator, and a lot of my work, whether it's my art or or my activism, or the youth and the individuals I connect with as an educator is rooted in my background as a Black Armenian Angelino. For background, my mom is a Black woman from the south side of Chicago, and she moved to Los Angeles just for a change of pace and to work in a hotel. She worked in telecommunications, and my dad moved he and my Armenian side of the family. So my grandparents, my Tatik and Babik, and my uncle and some other family members who came at different times, they immigrated from Yerevan, Armenia, in 1991. So he came very, very fresh, fresh to this country when he ended up meeting my mom. They always made sure from a young age that I knew who I was. I remember I got those talks early on. My mom always made sure that I knew about my Black identity and that I knew about everything that Black people in this country, in the United States, which is, you know, Turtle Island, but in this country that is built uh, on the labor 
the labor of enslaved Black folks on stolen land. I always knew that from a young age. And on my dad's side, I knew from a very young age as well about the Armenian genocide because I'm the descendant of Armenian genocide survivors. My grandpa, so my great-grandpa on my Tatik side, Gergen Aslanyan, he survived the genocide. He lost his entire family. There is a story that I always tell about how he and his brother, when they were fleeing from Turkish officers, soldiers, whatever you would like to call them, they were fleeing and trying to cross a river. And he held on to the tail of an ox And that is how he was able to get across, but he lost his brother and he saw his brother being taken away by uh, the Turkish officers who were following him. And that is the last that he he saw of him. On my Papik side, my great-grandma, Ashken, she uh, also lost nearly all of her family. And it was just her and her brother who survived. And my family on my Armenian side, all of the regions that they come from are regions that have uh, been lost. So all of those things, growing up, knowing that really informed my work and my focus. And I've always seen my art and everything that I choose to do as sort of an extension of living and honoring in the name of my ancestors. because. I should not be here in any sense, given the fact that I'm Black, given the fact that I'm Armenian. I always say that I am the legacy of two failed genocides because they did fail. My Papik was a performer. He did theater and then he acted in films and he directed films and assistant directed films in the real like kind of golden age of Armenian cinema. My Tatik and her sisters, my aunts, a lot of them were in the editing room. Like there were a lot of women at that time working in film who were editors and who were like actually editing and and cutting all of the the film and the things that we don't do now because it's all done digitally. So when I think about my my art, it's in it's in two parts. So there's me as a performer and then as a creative, as a storyteller, as a writer. Just being a performer, just holding space on stage, on film, being that representation. We always say representation matters. Representation matters, but it really does. And being a black Armenian performer, also being a black femme performer with natural hair, which I didn't realize would be as much of a thing as it is until I started performing in the park with Independent Shakespeare Company in Griffith Park. And I would get so many folks coming up to me. I remember there was this entire family of Armenian women, like older Armenian women, and they all came after me after the show. And they're like, we saw your name in the program. Oh, we're so proud of you. And they were all just hugging me like I was literally like I was their granddaughter. (laughs) They were so excited. And um, they, because my name, Karen, my mom heard a name that was similar to my name 
in high school, probably this, there's an Irish name, Kearney. It was probably that. And she was like, oh, if I ever have a daughter, I'm going to name her Kearney. And when she met my dad, he was like, oh, that's similar to the Armenian name, Karine. Like, it's very similar. And so in this family of Armenian women, there were a couple of them who had that name, Karine. And they're like, oh, I'm like you. And I'm like, yeah. And they were like, they were so happy. And it was great. And I just felt very loved. And that happened throughout the summer. People would come up to me and they'd be like, are you Armenian? Oh my God, I never see any of us anywhere. Like there's none of us. And that's not true. There are a lot of Armenian performers, but those of us that don't like change our names and are very like proud of our long last names and our culture, that's a little bit more rare. And then on the flip side of that, I had a lot of folks coming up to me who were members of the black community, little little black girls who came up and they're like, your hair is like mine. I'm so it's so good to see you. And I had parents who were like, This is great. She's never seen a girl in a role like this that looks like you. And like this means so much to her. And that's that's one of the things that really fills me up just as a performer in the representation sense. As a writer, as a a playwright, as someone who writes poetry and all of these things, that is the way that I'm able to share not only my truth, but to share my perspective and to share my perspective not only as Black woman, as an Armenian woman. And I try to put that experience, I try to put what I carry from my ancestors into everything I do, everything I write. And most recently... I was working on a device piece with my theater company and I wrote the play and it was titled White People Do Not Know How to Behave at Entertainments Designed for Ladies and Gentlemen of Color. And the title is taken from the signage of the African Company, which was the first black theater company in America. And this theater company existed. They they existed for a couple years from 1821 to 1823. And if y'all know, there was still very much slavery going on at that time. There were members of the company at the time, this company was in New York, who were still enslaved, who were able to perform with the company just to perform and leave. There were members of the company who were free at that time. At that time in New York, it was very, it was funky because if you were born after a certain date, you were free. And if you were born before that date, you were not. So there were families that were quite literally like split up. And that play that we wrote just explores what it means to be a Black American, what it means to be quote unquote American, and what it means to be a Black American performer. What we wanted to do was to make sure that we were busting up the expectations of what a play is, what theater looks like, what the theater making process looks like. When I was in college, I was very inspired by Entezaki Shange, and she is the playwright who wrote for Colored Girls. And that playwriting style, because it's a play, but in reality, it's a choreo poem. That's what she calls it, a choreo poem. That's the way that we kind of take things back our ancestral storytelling, our storytelling that's rooted in the oral tradition, that's rooted in movement, in song, in call and response, in all of these things that you lose. Oftentimes when you study theater and you study theater history, you know, they like to start from the Greeks. They want to start from, this is where theater started. It started in the West. And they completely ignore the roots of theater because the first theater that we know of comes from Africa. 
And it comes from like in the Egyptian tradition, they had all of these ritual performances. There's this tablet that describes the production that they were doing. It describes a stage manager. Like it literally, and that's, but then we want to talk about, oh, everything started with the Greeks. And we ignore like Japanese no theater. We ignore all of these theatrical traditions that are not rooted in the West that predated that time. So a lot of my work is also just bringing in Black and Armenian storytelling and non-Western traditional storytelling. Because that's boring. We've seen it. I mean, it's fine. It's cute. Listen, I perform with the Shakespeare Company. I enjoy my classics as well. It's fun. It's great. The language is beautiful. But that doesn't negate the beauty in storytelling that is non-Western. I had done a feature for an organization called Quidigs, which is Sisters in Armenian. And it was about, they were amplifying Black Armenian voices. And I, I spoke about my experience. And there were a lot of people in the Armenian community who started reaching out to me. And my platform grew quite a bit. And I didn't realize that there was just this space and this voice that a lot of people had not heard. There were so many people who were like, I'm Black and Armenian, or I'm mixed race and Armenian, I'm queer and Armenian. Like, we need to talk about these things. Or there were women who were speaking to me about, like, this is who my partner is. And I'm nervous because I'm experiencing all of these things from my family. And I feel like there's no one in my community who understands. And I just can no longer be part of our community. And the really beautiful thing that happened in that virtual space was that So many members of our community were able to find each other and to find that they weren't alone. And I continue to try with my work and with my organization, Yedazad, which we created to not only center Armenian liberation, but coalition building, transnational solidarity, all of these things that are important and that are really the only way forward. As we see all of this continues, we are here right now at the start of a new year, 2023, and we're dealing with the same things. We're dealing with another crisis. We're dealing with them actively trying to just clear all Armenians out of Artsakh. A few days ago, there were signs in Beverly Hills calling for essentially another Armenian genocide and stating that, you know, Armenians will be wiped off the face of this earth. So it's hard to not fall into that hopelessness. And... As awful as everything we're experiencing is, other communities are experiencing a lot of harm and trauma as well. When I think about the Armenian community and solidarity and the way that we show up for others, and then when I think about the Black community and solidarity and the way that we show up for others, it's very different. And it's known. I mean, it's known in all organizing circles and in a lot of movements that the Black community, that Black people, the Black diaspora tends to spark a lot of movements, tends to carry a lot of movements. A lot of movements are, are, are built on the labor and the emotional labor and the educational labor of Black folks. And a lot of the terms we use, a lot of the tactics we use come from that. So 
on one side, I, I have a community and that's part of what has made me the organizer that I am, that is regularly showing up, that is regularly building solidarity, regularly reaching out and not being insular. And I remember going to Armenian genocide marches and seeing Black folks there, seeing BLM there, seeing them show up, right? And then we have the Armenian community when we're going through things and the questions come up. No one shows up for us. No one is there, especially when things were happening in September of 2020 because we were coming off of that summer of a lot of action, a lot of activation and organizing when we were talking about what was happening with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey and all of and the laundry list of folks that no one talks about, all of the black trans femmes no one talks about who murdered that same summer that people weren't talking about. There was this idea in the Armenian community of, oh, everyone shows up for BLM. We're not trendy like BLM. So no one wants to. And I understand that hurt and that feeling, but there are gaps. And what I always try to explain to members of our community is we have to understand that there's a gap in understanding. There's a gap in media coverage. A lot of people, the average person, doesn't know what is happening to the Armenian community in the world. They don't know what Artsakh is. They don't. And we have a little bit of extra labor that we have to do. When it comes to organizing for Black folks here in the United States, it's um, you should know by now. And I know you, you know by now. And that's a bigger discussion. It's not only limited to the Armenian community. So then when people in the Armenian community were asking for support and for solidarity, but were also running around with Trump flags and big old America flags, I had to say, why do you think people would want to show up for our cause when you are confusing them about what the cause is? You are aligning our cause with a far-right American politician and movement. So how do you expect the black and brown Angelinos who are seeing that to react? And I got questions about that. People would say, because I'm someone who, because of my identity, I can navigate a lot of spaces and people feel comfortable speaking to me about things. And it was like, what's the deal with all the Trump flags, though? That being said, uh, one of the things that I discovered is there really is a strong and I think a, a larger community of Armenian folks here, even here in Los Angeles, who are very progressive, who show up. And it's a lot of Armenians who are part of other communities and other organizing collectives that are diverse. So there's, you know, the Armenians that I met and interacted with through Swana LA and the Armenians I've interacted with through organizations like She Loves Collective, which is an organization that is very progressive and centered and run by Armenian femmes. And all of these spaces, all of these artistic spaces, which brings me back to my upbringing and my tatik and papik and how they impacted my dad. And it's a lot of the Armenian artists and organizers and those are the folks who have held space for me 
and my identity and who value that and value what I bring and value the perspective I bring. And don't take it personally when I call our community out, rightfully so. Whereas other people see it as an attack instead of a learning experience. So I am hopeful. And one thing that I actually experienced this weekend, which was really beautiful, was She Loves Collective. They did a vigil. They had an installation up in Glendale, and it was an installation honoring the almost 4,000 fallen soldiers in the Artsakh War. Um, they had these hanging pieces of fabric, and each piece of fabric had a name of someone who had lost their life. And what I learned that night, there is a man, his name is Malcolm, and he has shown up at a lot of Armenian events. He speaks about us a lot. He's a black man. And he shows up for us quite a bit. He's taken photos at events when we had a, uh, uh, an event on Artsakh Street in November of 2020. And he was there. And I was like, oh, he recognized me. And we were talking. And they gave a speech. And they were like, we want to say a special thank you to a member of our community, a member of our community who is a black man, who is the reason we have this space. Because he went to the Glendale City Hall and he gave a speech about why he felt it was important for the Armenian community to have a space to mourn, to have a space to create an installation to explore the trauma of everything that had happened. And he advocated for that. And when they were speaking, they said, we really want to make sure that everyone knows and everyone sees that this is he did this and he showed up for us and he took that step. And I see so much solidarity like that in my day to day. One thing that I always think about and I carry with me in my work, and I heard it really finely articulated by a mentor of mine, Sabra Williams, who um, runs an organization that I teach with, Creative Acts, that centers our incarcerated folks. And it's the idea that we are always fighting for a world we may never live to see. And I know that we as organizers, a lot of times we can think, nothing's going to change. Nothing I do is really having an actual impact but it does. And I always say to folks, no action is too small. As long as you are putting in sustained effort and sustained work, that labor, the, the fruits of it, the seeds you're planting, it will bloom at some point. And you might not live to see it, but we're here for such a short time. And it really, at the end of the day, like I also like to tell people, it's not all about you. <laughs> Sometimes it's about doing something for the next generation. And I know for me too, it's hard to think about that when I think about like the state of our climate, when I think about the world that we're in, it's like, are we leaving a good home for our next generation? But it does keep me going. And it does remind me that everything that I'm doing does have an impact, even if I don't see it now. And then another thing that I always carry with me as well is the fact that I am still here, the fact that we, those of us who are the descendants of people who experienced unimaginable trauma, people who survived genocide, those of us who are still actively surviving 
living under imperialist colonial states and living under or in communities where people want to wipe us off of this earth. The fact that we are still here means that our ancestors are also still here. We are still carrying their legacy with us. They are still here because we're still here. And that's the most beautiful thing that I I keep with me every day. Swana Stories is produced by me, Kehan Azadi. The artwork and look of the show were created by Paradise, also known as Paradis. Check out more of their work at paradislily.com. You can connect with the show on Instagram at swanastoriespod. Please consider leaving a review or sharing with a friend. Thank you for listening. <laughs>